and welcome to Sunny at Horsham. I'm Emma. And I'm Anna. Emma, did you know that 2022 was named the best year for stargazing in the UK since 2011? Apparently light pollution peaked in 2020 but has been falling ever since, making it much easier now to see stars and planets with the naked eye. Do you know what? I didn't know that light pollution had got better, Anna, but although I've seen a few stars up in the sky on a clear night, um, I wouldn't have thought Horsham was particularly great place for viewing constellations. Exactly, me neither, which is why I was really taken aback by some photos I saw on a local forum online a couple of weeks ago, where a woman has been posting extremely detailed photos of space phenomena that are just bursting with colours and intricate features. I was so impressed that I decided to get in touch with her, Horsham resident Claire Bradshaw. Yes, Claire is a self-taught astronomy photographer and, as Anna says, produces some incredible images of the night skies. Claire combines her skills with some kit to capture pictures of planets, distant galaxies and nebula, things that we wouldn't be able to see if we simply looked out our windows at night. Claire is also keen to share her knowledge and especially to get more women and girls into space sciences. She also has a very exciting book project in the pipeline that she's going to tell us all about. We're going to talk to Claire about how she does to take these incredible photos, what is possible to see on a clear night and much more. Claire, I have to start by saying that how, how we met because, or how I found out about you, I, um, I came across some of your photos on Facebook and I was just, I'm not going to lie, I was just baffled and I thought, I really want to speak to this woman and hear more. And, and here we are. Welcome to Sounding Out Horsham. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Would you like to start by just telling us how did you get into astronomy and space photography? Um... So I've always been interested in space. Uh, where I, I used to live was quite sort of a dark sort of skies. Just off the coast of Kent is like a, a little island, 10 miles by five. Light pollution wasn't massive. There wasn't, there wasn't a nearby airport or lots of bright lights everywhere and stuff. So you could easily just go out for a wander or into the garden or whatever and you could see the night sky quite easily above your head. Um, didn't have the funds or anything to afford a telescope or anything like that so just used binoculars and basic cameras and that yeah so it was just something that fascinated me I just like to read up about it watch tv shows um sky at night horizon anything to do with space sciences just really really interested me it just all went from there tell us about the story of how you got your first telescope okay. One day I got a call from my friend's partner and she said that their daughter was interested in taking up astronomy and uh, did I have a recommendation for a, a reasonably good telescope, not, not super expensive, but something, you know, quite good. And in my heart it was, yeah, I, you know, something that's really, really good. So I'll describe it to them. And I said, okay, um, to get a reflector type, um, a particular mount, certain equipment to get with it. Don't go for this brand, that's like a BMW, Audi sort of top of the range, that's going to be really expensive. Just go for, you know, nice in the middle. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll, we'll get that for our, for our daughter. Okay. I really wanted that. I would really <laughs> love to get that to myself. A few weeks later, knock on the door and parcel delivery. Some boxes turn up. 
I recognize that brand. <gasps> Hang on. <laughs> so I opened it all up. Oh my gosh. So I contacted my friend, what's going on? And it, it turned out that my friend had gone into a syndicate with some other colleagues at work for the... Um, Big lottery, Euro Yeah, the lottery Euro, Euro Millions uh, lottery. And they had won a million pounds. Um, and that split between them. And one of the first things he did was go buy Claire a telescope. <laughs> go oh, find out what she wants. That's a nice friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, the photography took off from there. So I was just using a digital camera to take photographs through the telescope. And then it just evolved from there onwards. You talked about the equipment um, and you take these incredible pictures and what kind of equipment do you need to be able to, to capture that? So the pictures look great, but astronomy isn't just about owning a fantastic telescope. It isn't just about having the most amount of money to be able to say, yes, look at what I've got. Um, ancient civilizations were doing astronomy thousands of years ago and they were just using their own eyes, which is essentially, that's what you can do. You can just go outside, let your eyes adjust and then just see stars, constellations, Milky Way, shooting stars, um, different times of the year, different constellations are in the sky. So essentially you do not need a nice telescope to observe the night sky. To get the photographs that I do, then yes, you can ramp up to a telescope, either a refractor or a reflector. So I've got both types. Um, a reflector is more useful for planets and the moon. Refractors are better for doing deep skies, so galaxies, nebula, things like that. And it's all based on a mount. So the mount then aligns uh, the telescope to the pole star. It doesn't rotate directly above your head, all the stars. Mm -hmm. It's at a slight angle because the Earth is tipped at an angle. Um, and the pole star mm -hmm. is the one star that doesn't seem to move. So the mount looks at that star and it enables the, the mount to rotate at the same speed as the Earth. And that's really important because the camera is going to be looking at your object, but the Earth is rotating. So the stars are not moving, it's the Earth that's moving. So if you're looking at an object for five minutes at a time and you're taking a photograph that's five minutes long, if, you don't, if the telescope doesn't move with the Earth, then mm. what you're going to get is a streak and the, your stars are just going to be streaked across the picture. So in order to keep that image correct, um, the mount has to rotate with the same speed as the Earth. So if somebody wants to learn to map the sky by themselves, the pole star, that's a very strong reference, isn't yes. it? So the first thing I say is about with astronomy is learn the sky. Don't go rush out and buy thousands of pounds worth of equipment as lots of people did over COVID and then found I don't know how to use this and then sell it. Um, literally get a star map, a planisphere, which is basically a map that will tell you what's in the sky to see at that moment. Um, an astronomy magazine, they always print what is in the sky. And literally to go outside and then start learning, there's that constellation, I recognise that. And each night to go out, yes, I recognise Cassiopeia. So it's a W shape of stars. From there... You can say, right, I know how to get to Ursa Major, the Great Bear. And then from the Great Bear, it has two stars which point, called the pointers, 
to the pole star. So you then start being able to map out mm-hmm. each time you go out, I know what I'm looking at. Um, so you rest, and you mentioned, what, so what's, what resource do you need to be able to, to look up? Because I would go out and look up at the sky and not have a clue. So you mentioned a, a plan. A planisphere. A plan. So a planisphere is simply it's a square piece of cardboard. At the bottom you dial in today's day and it will show you on it the stars that will be seen that night. And then you hold it above your head and then you can say, right, there's the plough, there's Cassiopeia, there's Pegasus, there's uh, Perseus. And you start getting used to the fact of like, okay, I can use that, look at the night sky and then find what I'm looking for. Um, And then you get used to that. It's like once you've driven to somewhere a few times, you don't need to use Google Maps anymore or a map anymore to get there. You just know the way. And it's like the same. You step outside and you'll go, yes, I recognise that constellation. That's next to that constellation. It's next to that. It becomes a learning process. But yeah, having a planisphere is the first thing I would recommend getting hold of. Um, you can probably get them online, I yeah, think. Yeah, easily from Amazon or WH Smiths or something mm. like that. So Sorry, I just have to come back. I'm just going to hang up on the pole star the now. Pole star, but, yeah. but the pole star, what is so, the pole star? So the Earth is not, it's not in space straight up and down. It's tipped at 22 degrees. And that sort of tipping allows the seasons to happen. Yeah. So basically, if you were to draw a line through the Earth north to south the north celestial pole where all the stars seem to rotate around is basically in the northern direction and there is a star that's extremely close to that point so when all the stars are rotating in the sky because the earth is rotating it Mm -hmm. looks like the stars are moving actual fact so we are they the stars are all moving across the sky one star that seems to hardly move is the pole star and it's oh, fairly right. bright and it's near that point of the north celestial pole and that's extremely useful for astrophotography because you set the mount to point at that star and then if the mount is pointing at that star when the mount rotates it is rotating at the same angle that the earth is so finding that star and aligning to that star is super important for setting up for astrophotography and also, I imagine, well, back in the days when we navigated with the stars, yes. that was also a big point of reference. Yeah, I, so, I yeah lots of, lots of um, constellations are named from ancient Roman Greek times. Ursa Major, the Great Bear, Cassiopeia was named after a Greek queen, I think. Um, and Gemini, the Twins, and uh, Scorpius, the Scorpion. But then when more modern sailors went to sort of the southern hemisphere to find, you know, Australia and go and visit South Africa and, and South America, well, they couldn't navigate by the stars because all the stars are different in the southern hemisphere. So they had to come up with new constellations. So all the constellations or a lot of the constellations in the southern hemisphere have much more modern names. So named after the microscope or the easel and mm. uh, Southern Cross. So, yeah, then the Northern Hemisphere, they're all ancient names in the Southern Hemisphere. They're all very modern names. And this might sound like a stupid question, but are the constellations always the same? Are they always there, the same ones? There's no stupid questions when it comes to astronomy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yes, as the Earth goes around the Sun, we get to different seasons. So at the minute we're going into winter. 
and different constellations are visible to us at night time based upon where the earth is around the sun so in winter time we get things like gemini perseus uh, orion orion is one of my favorite constellations um it stands out so well so easily to spot in the eastern sky um what does that look like it's got the belt. It's got the belt. That's oh, yes. one of the few that so I know. Yes, so Orion is a, it's called Orion the Hunter. Uh, so it is a picture of a, a man with a club in his hand. Oh, okay. And in one shoulder is the very bright star, uh, Betelgeuse. So it's a bright red star. In the bottom corner, there's a star called Rigel, which is sort of a, a bright blue star. And then roughly in the middle of the two or three stars in a row, which is the Orion's Belt. So it's very distinct, very recognisable, because there's not a lot of clutter of other stars around it. So when it starts rising in the eastern sky in winter time, you can look outside, look to the east where the sun rises, and it will be there. It will just, it stands out like a sore thumb. So I love it. It's absolutely brilliant constellation. And winter, you mentioned winter time, you see it. Is is winter better time of year to see? Um, yes. Um, unfortunately, it is um, because winter time is obviously a lot colder. So going outside with a telescope, looking at some dots in the sky may not seem that appealing <laughs> when it's really, really cold. Um, but it can be very rewarding. The reason why wintertime opposed to summertime is better is literally because of uh, heat and okay. also sunlight so the sun doesn't set in june until maybe 10 half past 10 at night so astronomers will be sitting there okay go away sun because i really <laughs> want to see some stars and in wintertime the sun sets at some ridiculous hour like four o'clock which is brilliant because you can set your telescope up and you can be gathering lots and lots of photographs lots and lots of data throughout the night and be finished by nine o'clock. The downside is the fact that it's a lot colder. How does that help with astronomy? So the sun's rays are heating up the earth, 41 degrees C was it in July or something yeah, crazy oh, like that. So the earth was absorbing all of that heat and at night time it releases it all. And that, I don't know if anybody ever ever seen um, when heat is rising off tiles or coming off a chimney, it causes wobbling in the air. Yes. Mm. Well, that effect happens in the night sky in the summer. So the stars are essentially wobbling and it gets even worse when you're looking at the moon up close or planets up close. And that effect is a, a pain when it comes to taking right. photographs. Um, in the winter, there is less heat rising and so the sky is a lot clearer cooler more crisp mm. so that effect of when you're thinking yes it's nice cool crisp in winter time is brilliant for astronomers it just means wrapping up warm so yeah. if you're gonna go outside in winter wrap up warm so you take these incredible photos here in Horsham from your back garden yes right yeah. and you've got well you've obviously got great equipment you're gonna mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about the equipment, but also the whole process of taking yes. these photos, because it's not just click and the photo and is it's there. It's, yes. it's quite far off from that. Tell us. Um, the first thing you will learn with astronomy after learning the sky is patience. You have to have patience when it comes to astronomy, because everything has to line up right 
in order for you to be able to go out and do astronomy. What I mean by that is the weather. And there's been horrendous weather for the last several months and a lot of astronomers I know are drumming their fingers together. When are we going to get a clear sky? We may get a clear sky during the day and everybody's, yay, it's nice and sunny. And then at night time, the clouds turn up. Patience is key. Mm. Um, because then also you've got things like, as I say, uh, um, is a thing that we call the seeing. The seeing is stillness of air. So you may have a clear sky, but if the air is wobbling like mm. like mad, that makes observations or doing photography much much harder. There's lots and lots of things that have to have to be right. There's things like dew. So in the morning you may go out into the garden, you see dew all over the, the grass mm. and whatever you that dew can gather on equipment. So whilst yeah. the telescope's outside, it may cause fogging of the lenses and the mirrors and stuff, so you have to account for that. And how often, I mean, I guess it depends, like you say, it very much depends on, on the weather. And we have had an exceptionally wet November. Um, how frequently can you get pictures? A couple of months ago, a lot of astronomers that I know on Facebook and everything, oh my gosh, all week long, it's going to be great. And it's like we're all messaging each other. <laughs> yes, you know, I'm in Cornwall, it's going to be brilliant. I'm in Scotland, it's going to be brilliant. And you know, you're going to have to sacrifice sleep. <laughs> because you don't know when you're going to get the next clear sky and so you plan out in your head okay I'm going to take a photograph of that nebula that galaxy um, you maybe go for that planet and then you simply say right okay it's Monday you've got five hours of clear nights get outside set everything up go get as much data as possible and then the Tuesday is going to be great, so you get outside again, take lots and lots of photographs, and you could finish about one o'clock, half past one. Mm -hmm. um, the next night, the next night. So yes, it can be a very tiring thing, but the experience is great, and the data that you get is great. Mm -hmm. Astronomy is, say, split into two. One is observation, the other is the photography. With observation, you don't need to be sitting there for four or five hours at a time looking at things. You can be look at Jupiter, for example. Jupiter's the biggest planet in the solar system. It's huge, and it takes only 10 hours to rotate, which we obviously take 24. Jupiter's gone around two and a half times by the time we've gone around once and turned around once. That's apparent when you're looking at the, the planet. Literally over a period of half an hour to an hour, you can have seen it as rotated somewhat. And the four main moons that it's got about 60 moons but the four biggest moons you can literally see has moved position mm. you know within half an hour or so so in what detail can you with your telescope see say jupiter each telescope has a focal length in the same way that a camera lens has so the focal length of my telescope is 714 millimeters and depending on what lens you put in there depends on what magnification you get. There is a theoretical limit for each telescope and different telescope sizes will give you greater magnification. But yes, um, I can see right up to Jupiter, see the banding on, on of the clouds, the great red spot, which is a huge hurricane um, about one and a half times the size of the Earth. 
that goes around one part of Jupiter. It's enormous. enormous. It's a hurricane that's just a part of the environment around Jupiter. It's yeah. It's it's been observed for the last four five hundred years, and it's just this enormous hurricane. It's it's a red colour, and it's one and a half times the size of the Earth because Jupiter is about ten times the size of the Earth. It's mm. and is that causing problems on Ju- for Jupiter or it just it's, Jupiter is literally a gas giant it has a solid rocky core very very small upon which there are layers of liquid hydrogen helium because of the pressure you put gas under a pressure it eventually becomes a liquid right. so those layers build up and then on top of that there are gases of hydrogen helium and lots of other gases and then these end up becoming cloud belts on the surface of Jupiter, there isn't like a surface you can stand on, but you can see these cloud belts um, rotating in different directions and twirling and interacting with each other. And the Great Red Spot is just a hurricane, which is a part of that weather system. Um, in the same way that we have hurricanes mm. and cyclones mm. on, on the Earth, it's just gigantic, mm. one and a half times the size of the Earth just alone by itself. So yes, so that's the sort of detail I can see uh, with the telescope I've got. Incredible. So I think when I spoke with you earlier, you said that just to develop one photo can take, well, several hours. Mm -hmm. And you also said that in order to do that, you had to build your own computer or you had to modify your computer somehow. Yes, so the, the, the process of getting that end result photograph is a long one. And it requires a bit of knowledge of how to do that. So you simply can't just set up a telescope, take a photograph and hope for the best. The process that I go through to take a photograph, say for example, of the Flame Nebula and the Horsehead Nebula, a very famous nebula in Orion, in a part of Orion's belt, because they are invisible to the naked eye, our eyes are just not capable of picking up the nebula at all in their wavelengths of light. The telescope is but it takes a long time to get the data in how is that done so essentially first of all the telescope has to be polar aligned lined with the pole star so that when you start a long exposure you don't get streaks you get solid dots of stars then you say to the computer because i have a little computer connected to the the telescope itself this is what i want to take a photograph of okay it goes and finds it by moving them out to that object. Then it takes a photograph of the night sky and then it compares it to a map inside its own library. Um, and it says, am I looking at the right thing? No, you're a bit off. So it moves a bit, takes another photograph. Oh, almost there, almost there. Yes, there we are. We're looking at the right thing. So this is all automated. You program in to the telescope to take a number of photographs. So I normally typically take five minute long exposures. Even a five minute long exposure, letting all of those photons come in from that distant object is not enough. You have to take multiples of them. Mm. And so 12 in one hour and then 24, two hours, uh, 36 in three hours. So you can say to it, okay, keep tracking across the sky to, to keep taking five minute photographs of that object for the next three hours. Okay, and away it goes, and you just leave it. And then it starts taking these photographs. Um, 
There is another part of the scope that I use called a guide scope. Nobody can manufacture a telescope unless you're paying billions of dollars, like these really expensive NASA ones, etc. Nobody can build a telescope that is accurate enough to track exactly the, the same rotation of the Earth. So a guide scope and a guide camera keeps an eye on one star and it watches for little movements and it says are you moving a little bit up a little bit down a little bit left a little bit right and it keeps account of those little movements and it feeds it back to the scope and the mount to say keep on track mm. so oh, that's so clever isn't it the, yeah it's a very clever piece of software that does this thing it keeps the basically the telescope on target so that all of your stars are dots they're not drifting or they're not streaks or anything like that they're, they're all dots so polar line find your object set up your guide scope so that it's pointing at a star and you start taking your long exposure photographs once all that data is done you can come back the next night and do the same thing because the stars are still going to be there the next night they're not going to disappear and so you can start gathering lots and lots and lots of photographs. But even once you've got all of them, you have to go through a few other bits of processes called calibration files. There's several different types, but one of the main ones is called a dark. And a dark is where the chip that is on the camera, all of the pixels that are on that camera chip, there's some of them that might be damaged. And when if they are damaged, they show up white in your photograph. Well, if you've got a white star and a white damaged oh. pixel, you're not mm. going to know the difference between one and the other. <coughs> oh, yeah. So you need to do a thing called a dark, which is you just put the cover on the telescope and take a photograph, five minutes long, and then that will show you a black picture with all the dots on. And then your software can take the two away from each other. Oh, I see. So lots of calibration files, lots and lots of everything all together, and then you run it through, yes, the software, that which then produces the final picture. Sounds, to me, incredibly complicated. It is. But it's... It sounds complicated, but it's like with anything, once you know how to do that process, it becomes almost automatic. How long did it take you to, to understand that process? Was it self-taught? The great thing about the astronomy community is that not one person will ever turn around and say, I know best. There is a massive community of people out there who will be willing to help you. We're all learning off each yeah, other. Yeah, you bounce ideas off. And is there much of an astronomy community in Horsham? There's a uh, an astronomy Horsham Astronomy Society that meet up once a month. And there's a Facebook group and they share pictures and information. There's, there's massive communities of people out there who are just willing to, you know, help each other. So you have um, you have a background in education, and astronomy is your big big hobby. But you've also um, you're also very keen to educate people, and especially yeah. you're talking about especially women and girls uh, yes. into STEM and into astronomy. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I feel that if somebody knows about a subject, there's no point of keeping it to yourself. If there are other people out there who don't know about that subject and want to learn more, then it's almost like an obligation to help people to understand and to teach people. Um, and that's the reason why I started putting those pictures up on Facebook. It's all very well me taking photographs of the night sky and sharing it with other astronomers who are, yes, that's that galaxy or that's that nebula. 
um, I felt that I should really share that with people who don't have access to that equipment, don't have access to the night sky. And so that's what I wanted to do is to share this information. I'm very passionate, yes, about women and girls having access to STEM and space sciences. Astronomy, space sciences, STEM subjects are often touted as being very male-orientated subjects mm. when it doesn't really matter who you are. The universe doesn't care what gender yeah, you are. Yeah. It's going to be there. Yeah. Only we care. So those sort of boundaries and, and barriers I want to break, it's accessible to anybody. And it's starting to take off a little bit as well, isn't it? Now, thanks to what you posted on Facebook, you've been invited to give talks yes, in schools a little um, bit. That was a, a surprise that a teacher in Crawley asked me, would I take a class to tell them a bit about astronomy? Okay, interesting. Never done anything like that before, but that should be fun. Um, either it's going to go really well horribly wrong and so I thought you know I'll give it a go never done anything like that uh, then it turned out no it wasn't one class it was three classes 85 pupils wow. um, and um, no pressure yeah no pressure at all <laughs> they seemed to really love it and I loved doing it with my background in e-learning I understand ways of being able to take information that is complicated and transforming it in a way that is accessible and easy to understand and consume. So I did that the same with my presentation, is to put it in a way that um, would be engaging, exciting. So lots of big pictures, lots of exciting things to look at, lots of ah and oohs and ahs and wows. Um, I, I took the telescope along and I put a a cover over it and I said no this is what I use took the cover off <gasps> big mm. ooze and I was I thought right okay they're engaged <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing isn't it? it you look at um the skies I mean the pictures you you've taken are incredible and knowing that that is up in the skies and that anyone could can see it um or that it's knowing it's, that it's there, it's there. Mm-hmm. is quite awe-inspiring isn't it I, I certainly when you're know, seeing that makes Realising that there's so much out there makes you feel quite smaller. <laughs> there was, yeah, that a lot of people say about that is that this idea of they feel so small and insignificant compared to all of these things that are in the night sky. I see it the other way around. Mm. There's two possibilities. Either we're alone in the universe or we're not. It's one or the other. <laughs> we don't know. But if we are alone in the universe, that means we are uh, in extremely unique position to observe the universe and if we weren't here then nobody would be observing it and all of its beauty so that makes us not insignificant that makes us very significant because if we are alone in the universe there's only just us looking at it and the sky is beautiful Mm. to look at Um, there was a famous picture taken by a space probe as it passed Saturn, and it looked back on the, you know, the, the inner solar system, and the Earth was there, and it was called the pale blue dot. It was a tiny little dot, and um, Carl Sagan said uh, he had a long speech about it, but it was the fact that this dot contains absolutely everything in human history, everybody you've ever known. Mm loved and been with and friends with and every human event is on that tiny little dot yeah 
it, it could be you feel oh, that makes us so insignificant, but it's not. That makes us so significant. Yeah, that perspective is, I, is really interesting. I yeah. I mean. yeah. And I think also, if life on Earth at the moment feels a bit miserable, it's just looking at the sky and thinking that we are part of something mm. so much bigger. That just that in itself is also quite comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things I love when I take photographs and look outside and it's just seeing the night sky doing its thing mm. without our intervention. It doesn't need us. We're not important in that sense. We're important to look at it, but it's carrying on regardless. So, for example, I can look at Jupiter and I can see a planet millions of miles away and it's rotating and there's its moons going around, its family of moons mm. going around it. And I can, I can watch this and observe this. It doesn't care if I'm looking at it, what have you, but for me, it's significant. It's amazing to see. Sometimes if I've you know, had an off day or the news isn't great or anything like that, but it just feels amazing to set everything up and start taking photographs and then just go, oh my gosh, look at that. Yeah. yeah. And um, you, I know you, you obviously observe from your back garden. Mm-hmm. Are there spots in Horsham where you get a better view or does it matter it doesn't matter or what's the best place to to see um the skies anywhere that is away from light pollution um we have got Gatwick airport nearby mm. which does put up a lot of light up into the air but anywhere that you can avoid being around light pollution back gardens are great um you know if you don't get any street lights around you um, there are places to go to, but always go in groups, safety first and stuff. Um, but there are places that are out of the ways, like Denhill. I know people have gone to that area to observe the night sky. Mm. Um, so Horsham is quite well lit, quite a lot of light pollution. Mm. There's Gatwick and Crawley. Maybe more towards the South Downs. So more towards the South Downs. The South know. Downs is recognised as being a light pollution free area mm. it's got a status um, yeah. for being great for doing astronomy or seeing the night sky and being able to see the milky way with your own eyes yeah after your eyes have adjusted and just seeing the milky mm. way that's, yeah. that's a good point you were saying earlier that you can just go and see things with your eyes mm-hmm. you don't need expensive equipment yeah, or telescopes just, to see it and that's it obviously you can you can do that but for a novice to get the most out of it, what would you say is the best thing to, to take along? Um, for planets, a steady pair of binoculars is is great. Um, a small telescope is great as well. Um, the important thing is to work out your budget. Find out what your budget is and then we'll find out the equipment that would help you get the most out of it for doing um, looking at planets and, and the night sky and what have you. With most starter equipment, the first things you're going to be looking at are the moon, planets, significant planets, and stars, and, and certain nebula, bright nebula, you'll be able to see as a sort of a faint smudge, like a grey smudge, because your eyes literally just can't mm, pick up right. the bright colours. That's a basic difference between stars and planets. One is blinking and one is not. Yeah, the you, easiest way you can tell the difference between stars and planets is that a star will be twinkling, a planet will not be twinkling. It'll just be a dot that's not moving, 
so obviously not a plane or the International Space Station. Um, it's just a bright dot in the sky. At the minute, Jupiter is extremely bright over to the southeast and up. Mars is coming into opposition. What that means is that the Earth lies between the Sun and that planet, so it appears brighter and closer, and so it's a much more obvious red dot in the night sky to the east. A lot of people are taking photographs of that at the minute because you can see surface detail of the planet with, with telescopes. And then you did say, so uh, the belt of Orion, I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly, but that's that's a, a star uh, constellation that quite a, quite a lot of people yes. know, I think. And you said that's where you can find, so one of your one of your photographies is of the Horsehead, Horsehead Nebula. Nebula. Mm -hmm. And did you say that you can actually, it's in So Orion. yeah, the belt of Orion's three stars, Orion. and one of those stars is called Alintak, and next to that is a bunch of hydrogen gas. Mm. Hydrogen gas is the most basic element in the universe from which all stars start off from. And this gas is just around this area. The star is giving off lots of radiation, giving off heat, lights, and lots of other um, different types of radiation. That causes that hydrogen gas to glow. Mm. So in a similar sort of way that if you look at a neon bulb, so the gas inside has had electricity going through it, which causes it to glow red or green or yellow. Um, it's doing the same sort of thing, but on a gigantic scale. So this star is just giving off energy, causing this gas to glow, and we can pick that up with our, our telescopes and our cameras. The Horsehead Nebula literally looks like a um, knight's chess piece. It um, really does. We're going to put up your your amazing photography. We're going to put it up on social. It does look like that. It, it looks and and what it is in the background is a glowing red gas, mm -hmm. and then between us and that gas is just a piece of uh, dust, black dust, and it then forms that shape. Mm. So if you think of if you look at a a stage, and when they lay out um, scenery and things like that. So they put things that are in the distance right at the back and then things that get closer and they're sort of in front of each other. It's that sort of idea. So the glowing gas is in the background and then you've got these darker objects in front of it so that it's you can see the shape very easily. Um, next to it is the flame nebula. So again, the glowing gas from that star, Alintac. And then there is tendrils of black dust in between that give it that sort of flame effect. So if we just look at the belt of Orion, mm -hmm. that's actually there, it's just we can't see it. You just that, can't see it. There. The thing is, is that when you're looking at the night sky, it just looks like stars and it's very, very dark. Actually, the sky is awash with colour. All different gases are glowing in different wavelengths of light. It's just that we can't see it, but the cameras are there on the telescopes to pick it up. So hydrogen will, will be red, um, sulfur will be more sort of a yellowy colour, um, oxygen will be blue, and they're just a plethora of colours in the night sky. It's amazing. Mm. So to do what you do, your photographies, did you actually, did you rebuild your camera or did you rebuild your, your computer with the help of YouTube? So yeah, I, I literally just got a, a list of components that I needed because... I was processing all of the pictures and images. As you know, there's lots and lots of data, lots and lots of images um, on a little laptop, and it was taking hours and hours to do. 
and then you'd find oh you've made a mistake okay back again patience mm -hmm. <laughs> start again several more hours and it's like okay there it is it's fine I real bit I built my own PC simply to cut down those hours down to minutes just so that I can run it all through the computer and it goes through it super quick and then I get my end result. And um, your pictures, um, we know obviously you've, you've shared them very kindly on, on social media. Um, are, you, are you planning to do anything with your photography? I, I know you class yourself as an amateur photographer, but I mean, they look amazing. <laughs> What's the plan? Um, I would love, if I had a choice, to be doing public events, showing people in the night sky what's above their heads, um, teaching classes, things like that. That's something that I would love to do. I would also, I've got in mind um, selling the images, you know, taking photographs, doing something you love. If you can do a job that you love doing, you know, it's a passion of yours, um, is always super rewarding, it's always super special. So if I could be taking photographs and then selling them, that would be amazing. Um, at the beginning of the year, a friend of mine said, um, who was connected with a gallery, and she said, uh, we're going to do a display on clouds. People are taking photographs of clouds, paintings, jewellery, things like that. Um, some of your stuff looks a bit like clouds. Would you submit a picture? Okay, that's that's great. I'll do that. Um, so I took the photograph of the Horsehead Nebula and the Flame Nebula. Over three days it took, I got seven hours worth of data over three days. Put it all together, got that picture, had it printed on a metal sheet, um, three foot by two foot, had it sent to her. She's like, brilliant, okay, it's in the gallery. Unfortunately, I couldn't see it. I never got a chance to see it. It was hanging up for a month um, because it was on Long Island in New York. Oh. <laughs> so it was like, oh, that's great that it's there and there's people who can see it, but I can't. Um, but that gave me a real buzz. Of course. Mm. The fact that people can, you know, people are just seeing it in yeah. a gallery. Especially after all the, all the work that you've put into creating it. Yeah, to, to be, see the end result. Nice. And she sent a photograph of it hanging on the wall. So I was just like, wow, I would love to do this. I mean, I love my job as it is at the moment. Helping people to understand something when they say, no, I've got no idea what this mm. is. And then putting it into a way that's like, now can you absorb it? Now can you understand it? I love doing that. But if I could have astronomy as a part of that, yeah great mm -hmm. but you have to tell us about the contacts that you've had with uh, nasa and the european space agency yes. and uh, mit and all sorts of well-renowned um when i put together this computer a lot of friends of mine or women friends of mine who are astrophotographers you're so clever i couldn't do this you know i'm not capable of doing this and i said look i could get you all of the same parts delivered to you show you the same youtube video i used and you could put it together there's nothing special about doing it. And it's, it, it's, I feel that a lot of women have a sort of an inner monologue of just, oh, can't do that. It's too technical for me. That's not for me. Um, so what I did was I set out to put together a, a book of their best photographs and a portrait photograph of them, plus information about them to show whoever picks it up that it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your background, whether you're single, married, with children, without, um, you know, retired, young, whatever. It doesn't matter your background. 
you can be involved in astronomy and astrophotography. It's not just a preset, you know, defined type of people. And I thought that would be a great idea. And I thought that would be lovely to do for them as well as anybody who read it. And then we get it printed maybe through somebody and then we'd give the money to charity or something like that. Um, then I started talking to a few people. I said, you know, do you have any contacts in STEM or space sciences? Let me get back to you. And um, yes, this person is from the European Space Agency. They would like to talk to you. And there's a few other people that you can phone. So I'm phoning people in Germany. Yes, I'm interested in joining your, your book. You're the European Space Agency. <laughs> um, and they're like, yes, but this is very important. It's a very important message. Um, you're the European Space Agency. Why would you be interested in somebody like me from just from Horsham? But I thought, that's amazing. Yes, definitely. Okay, have you involved? And then it's snowballed. So there's a doctor of astronomy in exoplanet research from MIT. Um, NASA is involved. JPL is involved. The British Space Agency is involved. Um I'm still talking about this book project that will yes. be portraying women in astronomy, right? Yes. Yeah. So essentially there is lots of women from these different places around the world who want to send in their their portrait, information about them and their proudest moment. I've said to them, it's not just about astrophotography. It's your proudest moment in your field that you're in, which is STEM and space sciences. So one, for example, is an astrobiologist. Another lady is um, a, just a biologist. I'm going to say just, but she's a <laughs> biologist in her field. She's a doctor in mm, biology, yeah. but she just happens to do astrophotography. Another friend of mine said, you know, you've got an astronaut and you've got these people from NASA and you've got this, that and the other. And, and you know, am I good enough? Are you good enough? Have you heard yourself? Have you seen the photographs you produce? Have you seen the information that you've put out there to on Facebook to help other people know what they're doing, how to process these pictures? Of course you're good enough. I guess there's been no one to champion them so far or give yeah. them an outlet to, to That's put it. that out there. I, I, I was speaking to a lady from Ariane Space and she works in HR and she was said like, yeah, but you know, I'm not going to be important enough to go into this book. Are you kidding? You work for HR of Ariane Space. Who do you think puts the job specs together and interviews these people, whatever, who becomes the engineers, the scientists, the mm -hmm. astronauts who are going to be working with Ariane Space? It's you. Of course you're important. And as you say, yeah, I believe that a lot of these people who are involved just don't feel like that they are important because they're not being championed. Mm -hmm. So when do you think that this book will see the light of day? So I've gathered enough names, but I've, I'm saying to other people, yeah, if there's any other names who want to be involved, it's fine. So there's around about 65 to 70 at the minute. Oh, wow. And I've sent out a request to all of them to say, OK, deadline, end of February. But it's not a hard and fast rule, you know, March, April, to get in your, a photograph of your proudest moment or moments whatever that might be, a portrait of you, some information about you, um, and then we'll compile it all. And then when everybody's happy with it, we can then get it off to the printer, going to run it through a Kickstarter campaign so people can put the money towards to get it to a certain point where it'll be viable to be printed and then go from there. So looking probably 
towards mid to later next year. You have to keep us posted when, yeah, when it comes out. <laughs> it's very it's fascinating. Mm. Thanks Claire, it's, it's been no amazing talking to you and um, thank, you. thank you so much for your, your time talking us through everything. Um, I know that you're on social media, um, if anyone wants to, to see your pictures, you're on Instagram. Uh, on Instagram as Astronomy with Claire, uh, all one word. And that's Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E, isn't yes. it? Yes, <laughs> Astronomy with Claire. And that's where you post your pictures. Yes, yeah. Well, it's been great speaking to you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. It's great to speak to you too. It's been an honour. It's been very interesting. And we'll put links on social media with uh, when your book comes out and if anybody wants to get in touch about talks and things like that. we got the channels. <laughs> we are so thankful for all the feedback we've had and to those of you who keep listening and who subscribe, you make it worthwhile. Yes, yeah, so and now we want to ask you something. If you enjoy our podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could spread the word and tell other people all about it or by liking us on social media and sharing our posts. We've met so many fascinating individuals since we started Sounding Out Horsham and we'd love it if more people in the community could hear their stories. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sounding Out Horsham. And of course, don't hesitate to get in touch.